Religion as we know it today is a modern phenomenon. I said as we know it today, that's an important part of that sentence. We would not find abortion as we now see it. In the ancient world and in most of history, as I'll show you in a second, I'm not saying there were no such thing as abortions. I'm saying what we see now, as, it's, as it exists, would be a phenomenon that I think the ancient writers wouldn't, wouldn't know what to do with it. They wouldn't comprehend it. By which I mean, specifically, you would not look through most of history up into the modern era. You would not look and see a large industry, well-funded, that acts as a public service, that operates in the form of something like a hospital or a clinic with physicians and medical staff whose chief purpose and function was the killing and discarding of babies in utero. You just wouldn't have seen that. The biblical writers wouldn't speak to that. They wouldn't know what that is. So they, so they didn't speak to it such as it is specifically. They wouldn't, I think they would have had a hard time getting their minds around it. Certainly something like this where, where today, as I said, we, we prioritize it. Many sectors of our society have this as their chief priority. It is, the fun, it is the fundamental right for some people. It is the chief overarching freedom for some people that must be protected at all costs and ought to be celebrated coast to coast. Now, does that mean there were never abortions? Of course it doesn't mean that. Let me, let me highlight a few things that have always been true. So, these things have always been. There have always been women who in certain circumstances and for whatever reason did not want the babies they were carrying. That's nothing new. There have always been cases where women would want to terminate their pregnancies for a number of reasons, social reasons, maybe even medical reasons or something. Various reasons they would have had. This has always been the case. That's nothing new at all. There have always been men who also did not want babies they were responsible for. There have always been men who did not want that. And there have always been men who, sadly, have taken matters into their own hands to cause abortions or miscarriages or stillbirths, usually by the abuse of pregnant women. There have also been um, accidental situations like that. There has also always been what we call infanticide. Infanticide is defined as the killing of a newborn. And in some societies it's been practiced in different ways. In fact, you know, in the ancient Roman world, there became a number of unwanted pregnancies over time. Rome was one of the first big metropolitan cities, sort of bigger than any city had lived before it. And one of the things that's, unfortunately, there are a number of sins that get amplified in urban settings. I've always known this. You, you, you take a bunch of people such as we are with the problems we have and now you cram us together in tight quarters in massive numbers and, and it seems to sort of just uh, ramp up some of our worst possible tendencies. And so Rome, as, a, as one of the earliest major cities of the world, it was a, it was a place uh, often of uh, decadence and, and increasing uh, immorality of various kinds. And the result was... A number of babies not wanted, and what the Romans began to do was a practice that we usually call exposure. And this is more or less just leaving your baby to its fate. You, you're not taking its life yourself directly by your own hands. You're saying, 
I leave this baby for fate to determine what shall become of it and what shall happen. And just take a wild guess as to what particular group of people in the Roman period came along who were most notable for taking those babies in. Yeah, three guesses in the first two don't count. The early Christians were known, among a lot of other things, for being the people who would take babies who had been exposed, as, as the word goes, and taking them in and raising them. That was, that's, that was what it was like to be pro-life in the second century. So these things have always been true. And I'll add one more just sort of on the side, but there has at times, and in a few places, been the killing of babies by sacrifice by religious sacrifice. That's that's not common, but we'll put it in there too as just something that has been true in the past. And particularly, I say, because so many of you here, schooled in the Bible, you know that that Israel interacted with people, put it that way, who practiced this sort of thing. And when, so the prophets would say to them, would warn them, do not get mixed up with this particular religious cult this Canaanite religion uh, of the Ammonite people where their god Moloch, part of the worship of that god, was to offer sacrifices. People would think, I must offer the baby. Moloch demands blood here. Uh, incidentally, that place where that happened for generations, a, a mass grave, really, of, of, uh, of tiny corpses, became of a place, it was in a valley, the Valley of Hinnom, which, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom sometimes, which in the Hebrew language uh, is Gehinnom. You can, hear, you can hear there the origin of the Greek word then, of Gehenna, which is the word that is always translated to refer to a place of eternal hellfire or torment. And when Jerusalem was built, this valley was outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, and it became the place they used as a trash dump and where unwanted bodies were discarded, a terrible place where fires consumed trash at all times, right? A place where the worm dieth not. This indicated that even in, even in Israel, all the generations later, this site was just considered cursed in the worst way. And in large part because of what had happened there for those generations where babies were sacrificed. Well, are you feeling good yet? Where then now do we begin to address this issue of abortion in our times? It's polarizing, it's politicized. The traditional sermon on this topic looks to passages that we've heard, that we read, you heard read this morning. The Psalm 139, you, were, you know, I was formed. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together. Jeremiah 1.5, you know, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God tells the prophet. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. You could, you could even look to, um, you know, the, uh, the little John in utero who leaps, right? You could look at Paul saying, Galatians 1.15, God who set me apart from my mother's womb. Now, all of these are familiar to us, and all of these are perfectly legitimate to show what it is they show, which is that, yeah, it, these human beings known by these names existed before air entered their lungs, technically speaking. But I would ask you this question, do, would you need those verses specifically? Would you, would you need those verses to have a correct moral understanding of abortion? Are they required? If those verses didn't exist, would we just sort of go either way on it? 
flip a coin, not sure what right might be the right view. I've mentioned it before, by, by before I mean lots of times. The scriptures present overall a big picture, a big picture way of seeing everything, a worldview, a general perspective on all of reality itself, a sort of lens, and you look through the lens to correctly understand and interpret reality. You look through that grid to see things the way they should be seen, to see them rightly. And this involves some very basic truths that you probably don't even think about or question. There are things you presuppose. They almost feel intuitive to us. They don't necessarily have to be taught. You recognize them. Overall, it is a coherent view. It's a pretty sane view. It's very reasonable. In fact, this is part of what we consider revelation of God. You know, revelation is not just what comes in a dream, uh, what a prophet spoke, uh, a sign coming from, by way of a miracle, or even something, it, well, thus it is written. Those are all revelation. But there is a kind of revelation that we overlook that's so general and basic that all human beings have it. Which is why when people in the forest places on earth encounter those who know little to nothing of the scripture, they, they find them to already have in their background understanding some basic perspectives by virtue of being human beings. Because of the image they bear, they, they hear a voice of basic reason and they have a basic law written on the inside of them, which is their conscience. And, and we would be, I would be shocked to go to any island or mountain or frozen tundra or desert and find any, any people group that did not have that. Because that is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And reason and morality are basic to this. Human beings, however, this is part of our, this is part of our view that informs how we understand this whole thing. Human beings are not perfect. That's a mild way to put it. Very, very, very flawed in a whole number of ways. Very imperfect. And this, this affects our minds. So while we hear the basic voice of revelation in, in the form of you know, common sense and basic morality, that doesn't mean we hear it perfectly. Doesn't mean we hear it always and in every case. And that also doesn't mean that we are not often engaged in mind games and the sins that infect the mind and make us not see things we should see and cause us, as Paul says, to suppress things that deep down we know better, but we need them not to be true. We don't want them to be true. It's hard for us to face the reality of those things. And so this is human depravity. These two things exist side by side. Uh, if you wanted a good title for this message, it would be Human Dignity and Depravity. Our worldview, the, the scriptures as one voice, reveal both of these realities to us. And by the way, so does just everyday life. Your empirical understanding of the world based on everybody you've known and yourself and all of your experiences together have proven to you that these, these doctrines are in fact the case. They are true. The human beings are special. Life is sacred because we bear the stamp of God's image and that gives that provides basic human dignity. It's the foundation for basic human Right. It's something that all people really ought to understand. People all share this together. We are endowed by our Creator with them. They are inalienable, hence the language of Jefferson and friends, to say these things. And so we know it's true. We know that we know we have that. 
But we also know that we're really messed up. Human dignity, it's real. Human depravity, all too real. And this affects us and makes us not only immoral, but in some ways irrational. And you will find those two running parallel on a track right through the human race. That we are, we are immoral in so many ways and we are irrational in so many ways. And it can affect the emotions. It can affect your capacity to put the pieces together, to see the picture correctly. It affects your ability to make decisions. It can make you fool yourself and do terrible things. Total depravity. It's, it's holistic. It, it puts a taint on everything. So that people are capable of things that you would think otherwise they wouldn't be. When we think about abortion, we have to think with a theological mindset. We have to think biblically and we understand it from this perspective and in these terms. So let's consider the debate then. What is the debate? That, that, that everyone who, anybody who pays any attention knows that, this com- that there are two sides on this debate. And that they are chiefly defined in terms of how they see this This chiefly defined by the two words that they most emphasize, that they self-apply. The, the two different words that each side is pro. And so on one side is characterized by an emphasis on life. On the other side, an emphasis on choice. Life versus choice. If we're, if we're going to boil them down to their key words, that again, each side owns... This is what it comes down to. But it would seem that, in my mind anyway, it seems like very basic moral reasoning that we would recognize that that life, as a rule, should always take priority over other moral concerns. Are there other moral concerns besides life and death? Yes, there are. There's cheating. There, I mean, name a, we could name a long list of moral issues and concerns that are not life. But when one of them is pitted against life, I mean, which one, which one matters more? We, we should start there then and decide on that question. In the moral hierarchy, life always trumps choice. But that means that this issue comes down to a central question. The central moral question of abortion is this and no other. It is what is the nature of and the moral status of that which is in the womb? That is the chief overriding question. If you start with other questions... You're morally out of order. It's like, it's like saying, you know, there's a serial killer, but worrying about if he's been paying his taxes properly. You know, this sort of seems like your moral priorities aren't quite ranked the way they ought to be. This is the primary and chief question. What is the nature of and what is the moral status of what is in the womb? And you have to answer that question first. You answer that question first, and in fact, I would say that the way that you answer that question logically dictates your answer, most likely, at least it should, to the abortion question overall. That should be the the main question, and however you come down on it, it's the only question you need to bother answering. The rest of the issue will sort of take care of itself. It will flow naturally, with some exception. I'll put one asterisk on there. I might mention, but if, because, and it's like this, if, if the occupant of the womb is a human being, and if human beings bear the image of God, and if human beings, by nature of being human beings, have basic human rights, and chief among those is a right not to be killed, well, you see, your answer is already provided. However, if the thing in the womb is anything else, if it's not a human being, if it's like an organ, or 
you know, tissue of some kind, or I mean, whatever. If it's anything else, it doesn't bear human rights. Things don't bear rights. All right, if you have your liver taken out, there's no moral quandary here. Your liver is not a person. Your liver has, does not have basic human rights. Incidentally, neither does an egg unfertilized, or the spermatozoan, or anything. Even the components of life on their own aren't human beings. There's no coded individual there. An egg isn't going to grow up to be anything. There are like a billion possibilities once fertilized based on the unique DNA code that makes you, you, and you, you, and you, you, and every weird thing about you. And I know you, and there's some weird things about a bunch of you. But it's all encoded. But you see, it's as simple as that. And so the way some people have said it, put it like this. If what is in the womb is a human being, almost nothing can justify killing it. If it isn't a human being, almost no justification is needed. Now, as I said, technically there's nothing to be killed. It's almost bad language to say, if it's not a human being, you can kill it. Well, there's nothing to be killed. Right? You're, you're, it's just a removal. It's a removal of a thing. There's no killing even involved. Because there's no distinct living thing. Unless you want to say, well, the cells were living. So if this is the question, how do we answer it? It seems to me, again, that I, I am not going to reveal to you anything profound here. It seems clear by all accounts, common sense, backed up by the most obvious empirical science, right up to the point of imagery, that what is in the womb is in fact a human being. I mean, it's not a fish, it's not a stone, it's not the pork chop you ate yesterday. It's, you know, that, what, The occupant of the womb is a human being. And so scripture assumes this, those verses indicated it, people have mostly always recognized it, Modern science and technology have removed all doubt. Our, our legal system still makes it clear, because in most places you are, you are convicted of homicide if you kill someone who is in utero. From the beginning, this is a distinct human being. Technology has given us a rare window into this place of development that people didn't ever have before. It's a mystery. What's going on here then? Keep in mind that the fallen nature of human beings, it blinds us again. It makes us irrational. So quite often, very often, those people who write in support of abortion, they never so much as mention the primary question. The thing that I just said is the chief question will often just be skipped over. <laughs> they just won't even bring it up. And why would they leave that out? This is an exercise in, I would say, in willful ignorance and avoidance. Or as Paul might say, Suppression. This is a suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness. You don't want to go there. You don't want to address that question. That question puts you at risk for painful possibilities. And the worldview component is inescapable. I assumed earlier that every basic every every human being has basic human rights because we're we all say look, we all say, yeah, 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 that's true. And most people do. But you can't necessarily assume that. You know there are those. There are those, and this is the asterisk that I mentioned. There are those who say, yes, yes, what is in the womb is a human being. And yes, you can kill that human being. They're the exception to the, to the logic. And you say, well, who would say a thing like that? There have been those who, and I, I grant them at least the, I grant them at least that they're honest enough. They're honest enough to face the question 
and follow their reasoning through and admit that, or, that, that, that abortion is, in fact, yeah, it's what you say it is. It's the killing of a human being, often for convenience. Some people will admit that and say, and it should be perfectly okay to do. There's, you say, well, how would they say that? To, to understand why they say that, you have to understand the basic presuppositions and beliefs of those people. They don't think like you think. They don't have the basic understanding of life, of God, of man. They've got a different worldview. So, for example, one of the most notable people for this is a, is a Princeton ethicist. He's made a lot of... He's not the only one. He's just the most prominent. By the name of Peter Singer. Who, incidentally, writes some things that are perfectly good about helping people in the world and you know poverty and hunger problems, ethical issues... Some of that stuff we would read and say, well, that's perfectly nice. But you see, he has a different view of the world. He basically is an, uh, an atheist, and he thinks, look, we are, we, are, we are the highest evolved mammal by a long process that was utterly blind. In his mind, there's no such thing as human basic human rights. We sort of made that up. He says as much. Well, it's, that's just religious talk. We invented that idea. We don't have any basic fundamental rights. We're just... We're just monkeys with, you know, uh, who can do math better. That's all we are. We're, we're monkeys who, who wear, you know, who wear more clothes. There's nothing special about us. And so in his view, there's nothing sacred about human life. Sanctity of human life. Ha! He would disagree with the, the notion of it. And therefore, he says, why some animals might have more rights than the baby in the womb. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, if he's okay with that, what's to stop you from going further and saying infanticide? Because, you know, he says, look, what makes you valuable is that you're a, contribu- you're, you're a self-conscious being and part of society. Anybody know any three-week-old babies that are, that, that, are, that are part of society, that understand their future, that have this, that, you know, that, I mean, furthermore, anybody know any, anybody know any three-week-olds that are, that are now independent and no longer a burden on the mother. So you would say to him, but Dr. Singer, how would that, how would, wouldn't that allow for infanticide? And Dr. Singer would say, why, yes, it does. And he's honest enough to defend that as well, morally. Now you're going, oh my gosh, how could he? Given his worldview, how couldn't he? You see, this is, this is natural. One more thing. There's, there is another factor related to human depravity that we often, nobody wants to admit this, but we have to face it. You'll rarely ever hear this in discussions about this fact. This is tied to some other factors. The zeal for abortion, the zeal for it is tied directly to the sexual lives and choices of people today. Sometimes we say, why, why such celebration? You heard as Jeremy talked about. We got at least native, we got at least three uh, native uh, um, New Yorkers in this room, and of course, all ashamed at the recent legislation. You, you say, well, why? Why? An- another piece you read you read from uh, Russell Moore, and uh, and and Dr. Moore also wrote a thing on this. Uh, I think it was entitled "When Abortion Is Cheered," and he talked about sort of more of the mindset of. Of the the celebratory spirit, he, he he described it as the happy days are here again atmosphere. Might as well have ticker tape parade. When you say, well, why is that? What would make people cheer? Would you cheer for any other health right? If it's like, 
you, you know, we, we've now, I mean, look, we've had breakthroughs about um, the possibilities for treatments of things, and you don't see, I don't know if you have the, even that level of, of excitement. The reason is because the Roe decision itself cannot be detached from the sexual revolution that preceded it, and it's sort of ongoing now. Abortion, you see, is crucial for people who want and, are, and at this point feel like they need to live without any sexual restraint, unfettered by the natural consequences of this. And the primary consequence of, those, of, of living that way is babies. Biology 101, it's always been true. It's just that you know, now we have the technology to, to do away with the consequences and we're just lying to ourselves if we pretend not to recognize this obvious fact. So much of the irrationality of this and the emotion of those fighting so hard for this is rooted, no doubt, in a kind of guilt. A pervasive guilt as they seek to suppress and run away from the knowledge that they are sacrificing these lives in the most barbaric way. I don't want to know that. And it's all on the altar of sexual convenience. It's, it's, you know, how else do you explain it? I said that people in the ages past would be not, not be familiar with what we see today. And I think this facet of it would be most shocking to them. How do you celebrate this so much? I mean, this is a telltale sign. This is fervor. This is so prioritized. It's such a primary right. It's so celebrated. It's such a great liberty that people will fight. It's a hill for people to die on. It's like an ultimate litmus test for some people. You could, you could be the politician I love in every single way, but if you don't vote for that, that's it. That's my primary litmus test. It's a celebratory spirit attended with great fanfare when a decision like the New York one is passed in some circles. You know, it wasn't long enough, oh, that long ago, some of us, old enough, remember the, the way this was debated and talked about, even, even incidentally in the 90s, I mean the 90s, I mean the Clinton era, they would, it was still debated, but the way it would be talked about is that the supporters of abortion would say, you know, this is an unfortunate reality of life that is sometimes necessary, and so we must make it legal. It's sad that it has to be the case, but you know, that's just how it is, and sometimes it has to be done, and we must make abortions safe, legal, and rare. That was the Clinton platform. Safe, legal, and rare. You can just get rid of the idea of rare. You can get rid of the spirit of, well, it's just a necessary evil. This has changed. See, now, now there are movements, known, like there's one called Shout Your Abortion. Get out there and shout it from the rooftops. Get out there and share. It's, a, it's almost a religious testimony you're giving to the world. Oh, I was in darkness. I was blind. I couldn't see. Oh, I didn't know what I would do. Unwanted pregnancy. Then, then abortion. My Savior rescued me. And set me free. It's almost what it's like. It's a festive atmosphere. There was a, uh, the, the recent, recent anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Spawned one uh, company to come up with Rocky Roe versus Wade ice cream. Go ahead and bring the kids out. The ones you let live, you know. And uh, give, them a, give them an ice cream cone. They can enjoy some Rocky Roe versus Wade ice cream. Women now will just boast about the abortions they had. Some of them will say, I wish I had done it. There are marches. With the signs, and some of the signs say things like, quote, thank God for abortion. That's a real sign. I saw that one. How is it? Again, how has it come to this? Sometimes, you see, human depravity can lead us so far in the wrong direction 
We've waded into something so far and so deep that to let ourselves question it, to begin to admit the possibility that we've gone the wrong way is just too painful. So, so we just go all in. We just, we just take it up a notch, you know. And it'll feel like a point of no return. In the, in the, uh, during the Civil War in the South, some of the Southerners, they're losing men, they're losing the war, and they thought, you know, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to do what the North had been doing. Maybe it's time to arm some slaves and make them soldiers. The North had been doing it. And some said, maybe we should do that. But some of the other leaders stepped in and said, no, we cannot do that. And why couldn't they do that? Well, partly because, I mean, they're a little bit afraid. What are they going to do? They don't like us too much. But there's another reason that was more significant, actually. And some of them admitted it. And it's, it's a stark admission. They said, we cannot, at this point, do that because after all of this, after this way of life we've fought for and argued for, and it's based on some truths we've defended. It's based on the idea that we've gone to bat for this philosophical notion that they are inherently inferior to us. If we now say that they can make good soldiers and fight right alongside our boys, you see... What an admission that is. We will have undermined the whole philosophy this is based on. We can't bear to admit. Because what will that say about us? If we now admit, well, they're equal to us. Well, now you're just admitting that you've been sinning against these people for all these years. And we can't dare admit that. Our conscience, it's too painful. At one point in the play Macbeth, after he started, started his killing spree, he feels a lot of guilt about it, but he's not sure what to do. He's so far in and he says... Sort of famous lines, Macbeth, he says, he says, I am in blood stepped so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as to go o'er. I've, I've passed the point of no return. I might as well just go all the way now. I think this is why the central question of who's in the womb and what their rights are is so avoided, evaded, ignored, run away from. This is why ultrasounds are despised. People who normally would love science, love technology, they hate this technology. Get those things out. Get those machines out of here. We don't want to look at that. There is a terrible guilt. Many pro-lifers are hated. Well, just a couple of Q&As here. Is this about health care? Well, in a sense it is. The most important thing in healthcare is life and good health. <laughs> life and good health is what our healthcare is all about. And here we have two human beings, and yes, we should be concerned about the life and the good health of both, mother and baby. The widow and the orphan, we care about both. In this case, it's the mother and the child, and we care about both, life and good health to both. So yes, it is about healthcare in that sense. Is this about a woman's body and a bodily autonomy? Well, not primarily, because this involves not just one body, this involves two bodies. This is about a body within a body. And again, we are concerned about both of their bodies and both of their well-being. Is this about control over women? Well, if, if preventing a wrongful death is a form of control, then I suppose it is. But the law controls me in lots of ways. Sometimes I want to beat the child in ways I am not allowed to beat the child. The law is controlling my body. It's saying, you will not swing that stick that hard at that boy. Even though that boy sort of deserves it. God bless him. Is it control over women? Look, notice that no one shows this kind of interest in any other procedures. Why is that? Is there anybody marching about who can have their appendix out and when? 
I don't know, your late-term appendix? I'm not so sure. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You do whatever you want with your health, however, whatever. You want this surgery, you want that, you want that. You can cut your face. You can, you can get plastic surgery. You can get two noses. I don't care. Nobody cares about this stuff. Why do they care so much about this one? They just randomly select it? Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Let's just, let's just decide that this, this one health choice above all others we, we care about. No, they, it's about... It's about the womb's occupant we're trying to protect. Is this about invading the body? Sometimes they say, stay out of my body. The fact is, we're the ones trying to prevent others from invading your body. You should tell that to the abortion industry. Stay out of my body. We want them to stay out of your body. We will keep it protected. Need I remind you once again, as one of our guests could affirm, there are places in the world where the government has no problem invading your body. And they'll say, you know what? You got, you're having too many kids, no more. And we'll make sure. Now that's an invasion of your body. And there are places where they'll do just that. We are seeking to keep that from happening. But what if a child is unwanted? What if a child faces a difficult life ahead? What if there are hard circumstances? Again, simply apply, apply this same logic to a newborn. Apply this to the baby born five days ago. Born to parents in struggle, facing a difficult life, hard circumstances, even some health challenges. Are we okay to kill that newborn? See, that's the critical question. And incidentally, I've met a number of people who were, who were brought up and raised in tough circumstances. I've yet to meet one who said, I, they should have aborted me. I've yet to meet one who honestly says, yeah, what a mistake that was having me. Because, you know, my life was hard. In fact, I've met some pretty fabulous people like that. What can the church do? When you pray in general for the good of the nation, remember to pray for the ongoing national sin that is abortion. Continue to pray for it. Pray for the citizens involved, the churches that reach out, politicians who make the hard decisions, medical people. I mean, they're involved actively, in people, and, and especially all of those groups and people that seek to help mothers, like deaconess, pregnancy and adoption, and and just and families who adopt, and you know we've heard this, heard this morning about and from uh, people in this room who had this wonderful benefit of. As I mentioned, you uh, you know those two little troublemakers that uh, live at my house uh, that that joined our family, and that's you know as you you might guess a long story uh, for us, but I'll spare you the details. But it's it's a fun kind of chaos, and I'm glad they've added to our to our chaos. No baby was meant for the dumpster. I mean, this is gruesome. And so pray for it and those who help. And you can get involved to help persuade, to end this, to change the mindset. You can support even financially ministries that do this stuff, as I know that you know. And those who are, you know, as Jeremy indicated, we've got to stand in for those who make the good choices. The women who, who, uh, who, who out of conviction, bear this, bear, bear this burden. The church can help them can actively participate, but ultimately this is the symptom of a deeper problem. This goes to the soul. People need to be regenerated. They need to be given a new mind with new allegiances, new priorities. They've got to have new values. They need new identities in Christ. That, my friends, is that's always been the case. And that continues to be the business of the church where old, confused, tortured kind of thinking that is enslaved can be, can be washed out and a new mind put on. And where all the guilt people carry for decisions they have made. How do I, where do I dump off this burden of this guilt? 
Do we have an answer for that? We've got the only answer for that. We've got the only one. The church is still the hope of the world.